it. We are so thankful for your good hand upon us. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for newness of life in Christ. And now continue to grow us as a church, we pray, as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Around the turn of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, between the years of 1880 and 1920, immigration in America reached an all-time high. In those 40 years, 1880 to 1920, 23 million Americans, immigrants, excuse me, 23 million immigrants arrived in the United States to become Americans. One author described it like this. He writes, they came mainly from the countries of Europe, especially from impoverished towns and villages in southern and eastern Europe. One thing they had in common was a fervent belief that in America, life would be better. Most of these immigrants were poor. Somehow they managed to scrape together enough money to pay for their passage to America. Many immigrant families arrived penniless. Others had to make the journey in stages. Often the father came first, found work, and sent for his family later. Immigrants usually crossed the Atlantic as steerage passengers. Reached by steep, slippery stairways, the steerage lay deep down in the bowels of the ship. It was occupied by passengers paying the lowest fare. Men and women and children were packed into dark, foul-smelling compartments. They slept in narrow bunks stacked three high. They had no showers, no lounges, and no dining rooms. Food served from huge kettles was dished into dinner pails provided by the steamship company. Because steerage conditions were crowded and uncomfortable, passengers spent as much time as possible up on the upper decks. The voyage was an ordeal, but it was worth it. They were on their way to America. And indeed, America is a great place, isn't it? Immigration today is very much in the news, and I don't for one second blame anybody for wanting to come into this country. It does seem that how they come into the country should matter, but America is America the beautiful, isn't it? Have you ever been to Glacier National Park? Have you ever been to Flagstaff and the edge of the Grand Canyon? Have you ever looked at Lake Michigan from the observation deck of the Sears Tower in Chicago? Have you ever driven across the Midwest as the grain waves in the breeze? What a rich and great country in which we live. I thought that this celebration weekend of the birthday of our country, that it would be appropriate for us to take a little change up from our Matthew series and to encourage and strengthen ourselves as Americans and as Bible-believing Christian Americans. Because you have to wonder what people find when they come into this country today. Clearly and unfortunately, there seems to be a dark side, doesn't there? A fog, some kind of a immoral fog is settling in upon our land. It's difficult to see clearly how God can bless us as we break down morally these days. I don't want to be negative, but I want to live in Reelsville. 
characteristically, we are boldly and brashly sinning in the face of God as a nation. Characteristically and broadly across our country, we're characterized by rejecting biblical truth. We see it every day around us. I don't need to convince you. You read the paper. You look online at the headlines. You see the commentary. Prayer is being forbidden. Marriage is mocked. Illegal is legal. Murder is a choice. Sloth is rewarded. Lies are truth. Blood is blockbuster. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. Adultery is entertaining. Virginity is obsolete. Morality is marginalized. Abomination is normalized. Dark is light. The demonic is fascinating. Hard work is punished. Words are redefined. Perversion is freedom. Gender is confused. And on it goes. And our great country has seemingly imploded upon itself. We worry for our children. We wonder what kind of world our grandchildren will grow up in. And so this weekend, as we celebrate the 238th birthday of our great nation, we recognize that if ever there was a time when God's people need to be salt and light, as we were just studying in the Sermon on the Mount, the time is now. And it's difficult to imagine that the church has ever been more needed in our country and that the gospel has ever been more relevant. And so today, I do want to encourage us, even in this somewhat negative context, I want to encourage us, and I'm speaking specifically to God-fearing, Bible-believing, born-again Christians. I don't know who you are exactly. There could be some agnostics, some skeptics, maybe some atheists here today. I hope you'll listen. I hope the message somehow will resonate with you. I hope most of all that you'll recognize that Jesus Christ changes our lives and saves our souls from hell. But I thought it would be appropriate this weekend to pause from Matthew as I referenced and to challenge ourselves as a church that we would, number one, that we would think biblically. This is a time to think biblically. Our thoughts go all over the place. We must think biblically. Secondly, I think it's a good time to remind ourselves to stand courageously. And thirdly, I want to motivate us to live expectantly. So first of all, let's turn uh, to be encouraged to think biblically. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to turn in our Bibles a little bit this morning. But I invite you to turn, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12 for a few minutes. And we're, we're thinking about thinking biblically. You need to understand that when you turn into the epistle of 1 Peter, it's pretty evident that it was written by Peter. It's an epistle, that means it's a letter, and it's a letter that was circulated among a group of people that were dispersed. They were scattered, and the reason they were scattered is because they had suffered persecution for the cause of Christ. 
They had had their front windows bashed in. They had had their homes burned down. They had lost their jobs, all for the sake of Christ. They had converted to Christianity. The message of the apostles was spreading out through the east there and through the countryside. And people were being born again. And particularly, this was Jewish people who were spread out from Jerusalem because of persecution. They were having difficult times. And this dispersion of believers, many of them never saw one another again. So a church that had gathered and had relationship and had strength and was growing was scattered because of persecution. So one of the things that Peter's doing when he writes them, and he knows that this letter will be passed around. This letter was no doubt hand copied over and over and distributed among the pockets of believers who would meet together wherever they could find one another and gather and encourage one another, pray together, receive word from the apostles, guidance on how to live. So 1 Peter is a book to read when you're in big trouble. 1 Peter is a book to read when you don't know what to do and evil people are pressing in upon you. And one of the things that you see as you read the book is that Peter goes for their minds I want you to think correctly. I want you to think for us, for our purposes, think biblically. As we hold our Bibles on our lap and we wonder, how do we respond to this world? What do we teach our children? How do we react to the, to the winds of change that blow across our country? Things that we thought were constant are now very unstable. Things that we thought were reliable are unreliable. Things that we thought we could count on forever in America are now questioned. We don't even know if our Constitution will stand the test of time in many ways. So it's easy to become downcast. It's easy to become fearful. It's easy to think, well, we don't know what to do. Yes, we do. Be the church. Think biblically. Raise your kids. It's God's plan to have children. Have children. We're supposed to have children. And we're not the first generation. In fact, We have really been spoiled. We've been able to grow up in a country and in a nation that by all intents and purposes was founded upon a biblical morality. And so our faith in Jesus Christ and our confidence in the word of God has generally for 200 and plus years has generally been reinforced by the very laws and by the very guiding documents of our country. Our country as it developed and as buildings were built in our cities, they even chiseled Bible verses and the Ten Commandments in marble on our buildings, wanting that to guide us. So I'm not trying to say that all of our founding fathers or all that our earlier political leaders were godly, God-fearing men, but they had a sense that there was an absolute truth. They had a sense That there was an almighty God and not just a a general concept of God, but that it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who gave the Ten Commandments to his people, his nation Israel. And that there was an application of those Ten Commandments to us as a people. And that if we wanted the blessing of God, we needed to live in obedience to God's word at some level. Obviously, men are sinful and men are corrupt. And there's been difficulties through all the years of all eras of all ages but by and large as americans we have really lived a quiet and a calm life and government has fulfilled its duty that paul teaches in romans that it's supposed to do it is supposed to protect its people enforce its laws so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life that's what god designed government to do and we've been the the joy-filled recipients of being able to be Americans, the envy for much of the world, really. 
And if it's such a bad place, why does everybody want to come here, huh? If you've ever traveled around the world, it's not that there's not wonderful places around the globe. And God's people are everywhere. But one of the things we need to recognize this morning is that more than the fact that we are Americans, we're believers in the Lord Christ. And we have a common bond with believers all around the world. And so as we watch our country change, and as we watch morality shift, and as we watch things that are sinful become normal, as we react to that, we need to recognize that it is such an important time for us to think biblically. Let's look at what Peter instructed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you, you dispersed people, you people who are being persecuted, you people who are being put down because of your faith in Christ, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He was speaking particularly to Jews, but it applies to all people everywhere who follow Christ. And he said, this this is who you are, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, you once lived in darkness, but now you're in light. You once had a sin problem. Your sin is now forgiven. The greatest thing that anybody could ever say about themselves is that they've been to the cross, they've offloaded their sin and their sinfulness, and they've received as a free gift Through the grace of God, the gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us and made it possible that his righteousness could be credited to our account. And that's what we call the substitutionary death of Christ. That's the greatest thing that can ever happen to anybody. And Peter wants them to think like that. Listen. You might have lost your home. You might have lost your business. You might have lost your neighbor. You might not be able to find your cousins. You're spread out all over the place. You might be living in a shack somewhere, but you're a chosen people. Think correctly about who you are. This is who you are. And though you once were in darkness, you're now in light and you are a chosen generation. You're God's people first and foremost. Patriotism is getting a little bit out of style and old fashioned in some places. And I believe in being patriotic, and I love our country. I'm thankful. But more than anything else, I love it that I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. And I'm part of the greater body of Christ around the world, and we're heading to heaven. Peter goes on and he says in verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, okay? You might have lost your country, you might have lost your home, but you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy Beloved, look what he tells them, how to think. I urge you, and look how he, what he calls them, sojourners and exiles in the ESV. Your Bible might use the word pilgrim, might use the word alien. You're somebody who doesn't belong in this country. Don't panic if you lose everything you have, Peter's saying. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to people who've lost it all for, their, for the cause of Christ. And they have nothing. So don't worry about it. You're sojourners. You're exiles. You're people without a country anyway. What difference does it make? This isn't our home or our country. Beloved, I urge you as people on a journey, people sojourning, people who are pilgrims, exiles, here's what you're to do. You are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, Gentiles there is used as a word for anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. So when you're, when you're with Gentiles, live it out completely, but 
let the Gentiles see your conduct is honorable. And this, we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we were reminded in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. No doubt that's what's ringing in Peter's ears when he wrote this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you remember, the world is turning upside down. Remember, we live in an upside down world and people who are righteous and good will be called evildoers. Go figure. But who's the God of this world? Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan is. And everything in Satan's world is upside down. I remember when I was a kid in like 1968, we started using the word bad. That's really bad. It meant good. Some kid took his bike and took his dad's hacksaw and sawed off the front, sp- front um, forks and he took some other pipes and he added on. He made a chopper out of his, his banana seat bicycle, you know, with his high handlebars and he chopped it out and he's riding around the neighborhood on his bike and we'd say, that's bad. That's bad. It's not bad. It's good. It's good. Good is bad and bad is good. Even in little ways, in little nuance, Satan's world is just upside down. The redefining of words and the way we speak, everything's backwards in Satan's world. And Peter says, when they speak against you as evildoers, what is evil about Christ followers? They'll give you everything they have. They'll do anything for you. They'll take care of you when you're sick. They'll give you food when you don't need food. They'll let you stay at their house when you don't have a house. They'll do anything for you. They're evildoers. They speak against our sin. They may see your good deeds and they would glorify God on the day of visitation that somehow, by seeing the gospel at work in our lives, they would be pointed to Christ. So the first thing we want to think about is we want to think biblically about ourselves. And when we think biblically about ourselves, what we see from this passage, that they're pilgrims, they're They're aliens, and we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Philippians chapter 2 has a similar passage where Paul calls us out to be lights, shining lights in a crooked and perverse world. Listen, people who think biblically are people of contrast, and people of contrast don't fit in. So when you think biblically, you're not going to fit into this world. Stop trying to fit into this world. You're believers in the Lord Christ. You're different. The second thing, and I just want to touch on this one, is to turn to a second passage in our Bibles to the Old Testament. I've been reading through the life of David on our break and just making notes in my margin on different thoughts that come to my mind about David's leadership and the different ways that David responded to circumstances and just trying to learn from this man after God's own heart And interestingly enough, even at the end of his life, when God says, in all his ways, and then he says, except on the occasion of Uriah the Hittite, he pleased me in everything he did. What a testimony David had. What a difficult life he had in trying to look at it through the eyes of of leadership. I was reading through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings slowly. I really enjoyed uh, part of the break. One of the things that's difficult for me is when I wake up in the morning, I want to sit down and drink a cup of coffee and read my Bible and kind of have some devotions is my mind just starts to pick up pace and all I can think about is the day and think about the events and think about what's going to happen in the ministry and what we need to do and 
And it was really refreshing to just go out on the porch swing. One of the nicer spots in the entire state of West Virginia, I think, our front porch. And uh, sit on that swing and just take my time and let the word feed me and, and grow. And I was reading once again in 2 Samuel chapter 23. I invite you to turn there. It's not that hard to find in your Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 through 12, this is the end of King David's life. And one of the things he's doing in, in this incredible life that he lived one of the things that David recognizes as a leader is that part of God's blessing upon his life had to do with the lieutenants that he had around him had to do with the the support staff his generals and and his faithful loyal men the kind of men that you remember the story when he was at war with the Philistines and they had a front line and across that front line in Philistine territory was the well in Bethlehem where David had often refreshed himself with cool water when he was a young boy and they were hunkered down in their foxholes and he happened to speak out loud and say oh if I could just have a cool drink from my father's well and two men evidently risked their lives and went across enemy lines and got water and brought it back to David. That's the kind of men they had, he had around him who loved him and were loyal to him. Do you remember what David did with that water? He realized that those men had put their very lives on the line to get that drink for him, and he took that water and he poured it out on the ground. At first, it seems like a waste. But what he did was he offered it to the Lord. It was so too sacred for him to drink. And he honored the Lord with that drink offering. At the end of his life, as he's writing in his journals, David wants to give credit and he wants to list the names of some of these faithful, loyal men who served him, put, lost the many, lost their lives for him. In verse 8, we have the top three. It's very interesting. I want to make a point with them. Their names, these are the names, 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Here's some good names for if you're still having boys, okay? Joshebashebeth, a Tachmanite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. I have no idea what happened, exactly what that looked like. But in some fashion, perhaps in the way that God, through His Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, would come over Samson and fill him with His power in the time like when Samson picked up the jawbone of a donkey and killed a couple thousand Philistines at one time. In some way, this man became so filled with the Spirit of God, so convinced of and full of conviction for, and so jealous for God that God worked a great victory through him. He was able to kill 800 men and not lose his life. David is acknowledging him as this mighty man. And next to him, verse 9, among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I recommend Eleazar for your boy instead of Dodo. Um, <laughs> the son of Ahohai. He was with David. David's a good name too. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel all withdrew. He rose and he struck down the Philistines, listen to this, until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Again, we don't know all the details, but there was some kind of a battle front, a battle line drawn against them. The men became filled with fear, but Eleazar said, not on my watch. Eleazar said, not today, boys. 
If you spit on God, you spit on me. And he stood still. And he began to flail around with that sword. And it says, look what it says. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Eleazar didn't do it. God did it. And next to him, our final of three, the top three, was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, and there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines again. But he took his stand in the middle of the plot, and he defended it, and he struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Not only as we respond to changing times in our country must we think biblically, and people who think biblically are going to be men of women who contrast with the culture you don't fit in. Secondly, we need to stand courageously, and people who stand courageously are people of conviction, conviction, and you won't give in. You won't give in. What I want to lift up about these guys is that they were jealous for the righteous ways of God. They knew they were God's people. They knew they had possession of the land. And God's enemies, the Philistines, came in upon them. We'll not take time to talk about how it is that God gave men permission to kill men in the Old Testament. You missed that Sunday school class already if you weren't there a couple weeks ago. How is it in the Old Testament that God gave permission for people to kill people? That's pretty weird. And uh, that's just an example of the kinds of questions we're answering in that class. I really recommend it. It's really fun to study the Word like that. But God did at this time, in this dispensation, in this era, God used His people as agents of righteousness to fulfill His justice. And these guys are there, and I fully believe that each of these guys, Jashabashabeth, Eleazar, and Shammah, each of them thought that they were going to die that day. I don't know what they were thinking, but everybody else was afraid and ran away, which left them standing there to protect God's turf. So what we see in these men is that they're, they're such men of conviction that they'd rather die than run. I think that's the kind of men we need in our church. Men that are so full of conviction that they will never give in. And in an appropriate Christ-like manner, we will stand no matter the cost. And they thought, today's my day to die. And I think their next thought was, well, it's as good a day as any to die. Start flailing around with their sword. And then, because they stood for conviction, with conviction, because they were jealous for the righteousness of God, because they cared more about God's reputation than their own reputation, God brought about a great victory. Listen, God works through men and women and boys and girls and young people of conviction. You don't stand for anything. You'll give yourself over for everything. God won't work through you. It's men and women who will stand and say, no, this is what we believe. This is God's word. And so we think biblically and we stand courageously. What a good example the signers of the Declaration of Independence are of men of conviction. I'm sure that you've heard the different accounts of what it cost those men personally, in their families, in their businesses, in their estates, and their wealth. Many of them lost everything and, and several of them lost their lives because of signing the Declaration of Independence. There is a story, and it might be somewhat apocryphal, that I'm sure you've heard about John Hancock. You know when you look at a copy of the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock's name is right there in the middle in big, large, bold hand. 
You see, a decree had been delivered in 1776 from England offering a large reward for the capture of several of the leading figures of our revolution, including John Hancock. And so it's said that when he stood to sign, he volunteered to go first, and he said something like this, the British ministry can read this name without spectacles and let them double the reward. It's a man of conviction. It's a man who says, I'm not moving from this spot. So I'm not wrong. Thinking biblically, standing courageously, but maybe the most important point of all this morning is our final point, and with this we'll begin to wrap up. Hebrews chapter 11, I invite you to turn there as well. We must live expectantly. Live expectantly. How are we going to process living in a changing, declining world that is ever increasingly antagonistic against the things of God and the things of Christ? How? We must think biblically, and people who think biblically don't fit in. We must stand courageously, and people who stand courageously don't give in. And finally, we must live expectantly, and people who live expectantly, listen, they don't want in. They don't want in. You know why? Because this isn't our world. Look what the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 11. It's the faith chapter. And by the way, we're studying this on Wednesday evenings. And I don't think in this service that I've taken a, a, a moment. I think it would be appropriate right now as I reference Hebrews chapter 11 in our studies on our adult Bible study on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Room 106, I believe, is where we're meeting. Um, we're studying through Hebrews chapter 11. So be reading it and make it out on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. It's, it's laid back and casual. You'll enjoy it. We're just studying the Word together and strengthening ourselves in the faith. But Jim Shupi's gotten it started. And I think he's right up to about where we're going to read. Verse 13 today, and some of you have been coming to that, many of you have not, I'll be picking it up this Wednesday, um, pray for Jim Shupi, um, he's over at Belcroft Bible Church, his former church for the entire month of July now, every Sunday morning, he's preaching through the book of Nehemiah to encourage and strengthen them as they're struggling uh, to maintain their leadership and momentum and find a pastor, they called him back for a month to kind of regather the troops and to encourage them, but did you appreciate his ministry here while I was away, I, I love it that Jim Shupi and Martha Shupi are here. And that God has brought gifted Bible teachers to us. And I felt so good on Sunday morning to lay in bed and to pray, you know, around 7.30 and say, <laughs> Lord, bless Jim Shupi as he opens the word, feeds the flock and encourages them. And I know you benefited. I've listened to two of the four messages so far and I've been immensely blessed by them. And I just wanted to publicly say how much I appreciate Jim Shupi's uh, ministry in the word in my absence but here in Hebrews chapter 11, we're, he's talking about the life of Abraham. In fact, let's pick it up at verse 8 and get a little context. And we're going to pick this up on Wednesday evening. If you have time, come on out. We're talking about people who live expectantly and they don't want to be a part of this world. They have another world for which they're living. In verse 8, to put it in context, the writer of Hebrews is elevating the faith of Abraham and Sarah, who Abraham, verse 8, who obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Listen to this. And he went out, not even knowing where he was going. That's faith. 
Don't know where I'm going, but I'm going. By faith, verse 9, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Listen to verse 10. Why? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Are you looking forward to a new city in which you're going to live someday? All the details are in Revelation chapter 21. Yes, we're proud Americans. Yes, we care about America. But this isn't our final stop. We're sojourners, people. We have a city in the sky waiting for us. That might sound crazy. That's what the Bible says. And I really, really like that. This is what he says. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, he was so old, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. But look at this, verse 13. These all died in faith. Who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At least these three, they all died in faith not having received the things promised. In other words, God had been promising them that you're, I'm going to do this with you, and they lived their entire life, and they never saw God do it. But they still believed he was going to do it. They couldn't explain how, but they knew that because God had said it, he would do it. That's faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, they saw them, and they greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, here it is again, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They're just pilgrims, aliens. We don't belong here. We don't fit in. We don't give in, and we don't even want in, because we're heading somewhere else. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. There's our theme. You heard the choir sing, living in the homeland. I'm looking for the homeland. I'm living for the other homeland, not this homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. It never occurred to them return, to return because they had a vision for the city whose builder and maker was God. But as it is, verse 16, they desire, here it is, a better country. A better country. I desire a better country here. As citizens, we could be engaged, we should be engaged. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, I like this, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Listen, we've got to live with an eternal perspective. We've got to live expectantly that God has even greater things ahead and that we're living now for our new homeland in the same way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed that God was going to take them into a new land that he had prepared for them, a promised land. And God has a promised land for his church. And it's going to be a remake of this whole world. In conclusion, I want to say three things. As I challenge our church and myself to think biblically and to live courageously and to live expectantly, there are at least three things I'm not saying. I'm not saying that to not fit in, because we're thinking biblically and we don't fit in, I'm not saying that that means we don't care. 
We do care about our country. In fact, part of the breakdown of our country and the ingenious system in which our founding fathers originated for governance has everything to do with the citizens' involvement. Get involved! You should care about your neighborhood. You should care about your state, your county, your country. And as we see things change and happen, and if we as citizens have a right and can be involved, we ought to be involved. Just remember, you're just helping a pilgrim land. You're in a pilgrim land. It's not the ultimate end. And as we things, see things crumble around us, yes, it's distressing, but it doesn't defeat us. This isn't our home. And so to not fit in does not mean that I don't care. God's people, among all people, should care. As we see this unbelievable scheme of bringing in aliens into our country, literally illegally it appears to me, I'm not against anybody coming into our country who wants to be a good citizen and I don't blame anybody anywhere. Been to Africa, I think everybody ought to want to live in America. But as these pitiful folks and these children pour in on our southern borders, you can get angry about it. You can get upset about it. You get frustrated about it. And it's not wrong to write your congressmen and your senators. But if anybody should care about those pitiful people, it should be the church. If anybody should be giving a cool drink of water in Jesus' name, it's the church. If anybody should be providing shelter and care, it's the church. I don't know if God will give us a chance to do that or how to do that exactly today. But I think that Broken, pitiful people ought to know that there's Christian people in the community or something's wrong. Secondly, I'm not saying that to stand with conviction and to don't give in means that we're angry. I like to talk like I'm angry sometimes, but I'm not. God's people need to be known for their love, not their anger. So to stand with conviction and to not give in does not mean I'm angry. I can have a righteous indignation. And I can get pretty upset about things that, that I see are so blatantly sinful and are such a reproach in the face of God and the highest offices in our land call for that to be normalcy. There's a problem there and it really, really upsets me. But I don't want to be known as the angry preacher over there. I want to be known as a Christ-like, loving, godly man who cares about the souls of pitiful people who don't have enough sense to know their left hand from their right hand, like in Nineveh. Finally, to live with expectation and to not want in does not mean that this life and this country doesn't have purpose and meaning. It does. And as I've already referenced, our system is a a citizen system. It's a representative system. Let's make sure that we're doing our part to seek to appoint people who do represent our convictions to the best of our ability. But over all of that, as it breaks down and as we lose our moorings, heaven should be only sweeter to us. Remember, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're living for the homeland, and this is not the homeland. Let's pray. Father, would you show us how to live We need your Holy Spirit to open our minds to the truths of your word so that we know how to think. And we need your spirit to steal us and to strengthen us and to temper us so that we don't bend or break 
and that we don't give in, and that we're men and women of conviction, and we're a church of courageous conviction, no matter the cost. And Father, we need your Spirit to renew our vision for heaven, and to remind us of who we really are, that we're called out ones, and we're a holy generation, and we're a people called by your name, and that we're just exiled for a while, sojourning for a while, pilgriming through this land, heading for the homeland. Would you show us how to live like that? Give us discernment. Give us wisdom to know how to interact with our world. Show us how to live out the claims of Christ, even as we return to the Gospel of Matthew soon, that we would understand the mind of Christ and the teachings of Christ to live it well. And Father, we do look forward to the day when we'll all be together in heaven and all the sin and all the baggage and all the garbage will be left behind. What a day that will be. Encourage our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.